Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J, and I hope you're all doing so well, and thanks for tuning in to another week of storytelling and examining the crimes and tales that occurred right here in the Classic City. As you've probably heard by now, if you're part of our exclusive email list, that is, and if not, be sure to sign up. We'll be soon covering the brutal 1987 murders for which Clinton Bankston was sent to prison. This multiple-part series will memorialize those who were lost, will examine how the case not only changed Athens, but the laws of this state, and will try to get to the bottom of that three-letter question that always bothers each of us. Why? But before we go there, you know I always love to bring in experts when I can who can help us better understand some of the content we've covered together. After all, while I may be a podcaster who loves to research and the search for justice, there are many things I'm just quite simply not. An officer of the law, a judge, and though I'm proudly now studying in the field of criminology halfway through the semester, I'm also not knowledgeable in the field of psychology, and that's what this week is going to be all about. You see, the mind of John Mooney and the psychology of the folks involved in the T.K. Hardy case has always been really interesting to me. While I'm a believer in forgiveness and grace, as you all know, there's a part of me that's always wondered, what the hell was John Mooney thinking? Further, how was he able to personally and mentally not only order the killing of T.K. Hardy, but escape from prison, live a double life, never being exposed or telling anyone the truth until he was captured? Now, I'm sure these questions have been on your mind, too, and for this story based deeply in Athens history, I wanted to find someone in our local university community who could speak with me about forensic psychology as a study and what we might learn from their expertise in the field. We have two special guests this week. First, you're going to hear from Trina Saitersky, Senior Lecturer and Undergraduate Coordinator at the Behavioral and Brain Sciences Program at the University of Georgia. Now, you'll have to remember, she has not met John Mooney nor Elmo Florence, but she has reviewed their letters and has listened to the podcast. Secondly, we're going to hear from another professor of forensic psychology who used to call Athens home and who actually knew and worked for John Mooney at somebody's pizza. She even attended his trial. But first, let me introduce you to Trina, who came by the Classic City Crime Headquarters, sponsored by my friend, former DA Harry Gordon, this week to discuss the whirlwind that is the case of T.K. Hardy and the life of John Henry Mooney. I'm a senior lecturer at UGA, as well as the undergraduate coordinator in the psychology department. And I've been here uh, a number of years. I got my PhD um, from Virginia Tech in biobehavioral psychology. And I studied for my dissertation people who were very similar to criminal psychopaths. And I was looking kind of broadly at that construct of psychopathy uh, and specifically at the emotional processing deficits in Mm -hmm. psychopaths. Mm -hmm. And then I went up to the Chicago area for my postdoctoral research afterwards and did research on uh, psychopaths. And that involved going to a a county jail up in the northern Chicago, north of Chicago, Waukegan, Illinois area and interviewing the incarcerated male inmates there and assessing them for psychopathy and then doing further research on them. Wow, and you told me that you spent the majority of your career, if not all, in the academic world. Is that right? Yes. Okay. 
Yes. So I have been um, not doing research, but have been teaching forensic psychology and I teach a, a variety of classes, but I also teach a psychology of crime and aggression class at UGA. And so we talk about all sorts of topics. Uh, we talk about psychopaths and we talk about serial killers and mass murderers and so forth. So you can only imagine after hearing those credentials, I knew I had found someone we needed to hear from, not only about this case, but hopefully for cases to come. I started out by saying what I've told all of you about my opinion on the TK Hardy case from the beginning, a statement Trina agreed with. Isn't it the most Athens story that you can get? That's what I always say. <laughs> it really is. And it's a, it's a fascinating case because for such a small town, there's quite a lot to it mm-hmm. with a number of different um, individuals and um, different perspectives and ways to look at it. And of mm-hmm. course, I think the prison escape and living for years with an alias is just something that we don't typically see in a small town like Athens. So I wanted to ask the professor, what in fact did she feel after she read the letters from Elmo Florence and John Mooney that they had written in the years after Theodore Hardy's death? We know Elmo Florence initially continued to deny any involvement. We then see him say that he was involved and that he viewed John Mooney as blameless, which I always found interesting. We see John Mooney admit his part in a plea for parole. And Trina admits it's hard to know exactly why these things happened the way they did. You know, it is hard to say how often in terms of any sort of uh, records or valid statistics on that type of thing in terms of changing attitudes. But uh, because you could imagine that for most individuals, if they're pleading not guilty, then they would not want to say anything incriminating until all of their appeals had been Um, exhausted. Uh, And then even though, even when somebody say goes up before a parole board, there are many things, I guess, that a parole board would look at in terms of making their decision. And they might be interested in hearing some element of remorse. Mm. Uh, But if, let's say, a person was truly innocent of their crime, it wouldn't be advisable for that person, even at that point, to make any sort of false statement right, to right. the police. So uh, I think anything uh, would be anecdotal and not um, of record and kind of data along those lines. Mm-hmm. One thing that I thought was interesting in Elmo's whole letter, you know, all of this has happened to him. He's gone to jail because of, you know, these conversations with Mooney and then heading over to T.K. Hardy's home. He still says, I quote, view John Mooney as blameless. What did you think when you read that? It, it is, you know, I hesitate to to speculate for any of this if you haven't uh, on something as simple as one letter and a statement. Sure. But I don't think it's unreasonable to think that maybe he's alluding to the fact that he wasn't directly uh, instructed to kill, but was rather uh, in, uh, um but rather was instructed to go over there and get the, the, the form signed and maybe to intimidate. And then it, it appears that things got out of hand. And so potentially that might be the case here where uh, you're dealing with an individual who felt threatened or got angry and reacted. And got out of hand, they did. As Elmo reportedly spooked by a reactive TK Hardy pulled the trigger, which led to the downfall of so many. 
It brought my mind back to a conversation that we had with classic city crime friend Dr. Michael Parati in Season 1 on the Tara Baker story about the types of violence, those which are planned and those which happen at the spur of the moment. Trina and I talked about these types of violence and which might be at play in this case and how we might find some of what we are discussing in our own lives or the lives of those around us. Yeah, so in psychology, there is often this distinction made between reactive versus um, instrumental types of aggression, and it can be a useful way of categorizing types of violence uh, so that instrumental is that uh, more cold-blooded, without emotion type of calculated, premeditated violence, mm-hmm. uh, whereas reactive is a type of aggression that is more impulsive and hot-blooded and with that emotion uh, that coincides with that type of aggression. So I guess bear in mind, though, that many criminals would exhibit in their past both mm-hmm. instrumental and reactive aggression at different points in their life. And, you know, when you look at T.K. Hardy's case and what what we've heard happened once Elmo Florence went there, that he put a lease down in front of him and T.K. pretty much said, hell no, and probably made a move toward him to protect himself. Would that, in your opinion, fall in more of that reactive aggression, something going wrong? Something like that would be, uh, could serve as a trigger for a reactive type of violence Mm -hmm. because sometimes these criminals uh, who are impulsive and uh, reactive, they have um, what we would call a hostile attributional bias, uh, which means that they have this general tendency to attribute attribute hostile intentions on the part of others, mm-hmm. uh, which is an individual difference. Because many individuals in an ambiguous situation might attribute somebody's, let's say if they bumped into them, they might attribute that to an accident Mm. uh, and think uh, nothing of it. Whereas somebody with a hostile attributional bias would probably attribute hostile intent to that and think that that person intended to insult them or hurt them. And that would trigger potentially a reactive outburst, maybe verbally or physically. You know, this kind of puts it on a smaller scale for me outside of just the realm of a murder, right? You know, this could be our everyday lives. How do we prevent ourselves from being like this? Is there any way to do that? Well, sometimes people develop a hostile attributional bias over the course of their lifetime Mm -hmm. uh, because of the situations to which they have been exposed. Mm -hmm. And that type of defense could serve them well if they have had a life of exposure to, let's say, you know, abuse or trauma or anything like that, then um, that would uh, serve as sort of a defense mechanism, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could see how something like that might develop in an individual over the course of their life based on their experiences. One thing that's always bothered me about the case and about this tragic story is that John Mooney was not only able to manipulate and convince Elmo Florence that T.K. Hardy deserved to be threatened, if not killed, but that he was also able to escape prison and live a totally separate life for nine years in Arizona, never, at least to our knowledge, revealing who he was. That takes a special kind of someone, I thought, perhaps that of a psychopath, But I'm not an expert, right? And here's what Trina has to say about all of this, and it's a lesson for each of us. 
It's important now for all of us to remember Trina has not met, nor has she ever interacted with John Mooney, and our discussions are based solely around the known facts of the case and what we've learned here. You can look at a case like this where there are enough details and talk about the concept, I think, more broadly and see in some ways some similarities uh, with some of these shared characteristics. So, you know, so we can talk about what is what is a, a psychopath. So there are a number of characteristics that go into uh, this diagnosis and it is, I think, also important just one more time to remember that many people share some of the characteristics of a psychopath but would not meet the diagnostic criteria really? for mm-hmm. psychopathy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just because a person escaped from prison and just because they uh, apparently were at least somewhat um, skilled at manipulating others, lying to others, uh, and so forth, uh, that wouldn't necessarily mean that they were... Um, a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Uh, but undoubtedly, that is an intriguing part of this case because sure. it takes a certain personality to uh, be able to uh, escape from prison. So it required that the, you know, that any escape for any, you know, criminal, right. it would require that they had enough of um, some charm to their personality, uh, that they were likable enough and calm enough within the institution to mm-hmm. gain some trust with the security and, and we do know John Betty became a kitchen staffer at the prison so which afforded him then the opportunity for the escape that he wouldn't have if he didn't at least have some of these elements in his personality mm-hmm. that made him seem trustworthy even though apparently he was not because mm-hmm. as soon as he did have the opportunity um, he escaped and there's that that other element as well uh, that is impulsivity, which is part of the, the syndrome uh, because there is, imagine the level of kind of um, either narcissism, uh, egocentrism, confidence uh, to go through with a plan to escape jail and the lack of fear uh, that a person might have to take this opportunity and try to escape from jail and not be too scared to act when they did have Mm -hmm. the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about, you know, apart from this case specifically, when you're looking at um, the syndrome of psychopathy and the cluster of symptoms and different things like that, what are you looking for? Mm -hmm. What are those things? And how many traits does someone have to have? I guess this is something I've never known. How many traits in a clinical diagnosis would someone have to have to be labeled a psychopath? Well, one valid and reliable assessment measure when it comes to psychopathy uh, is known as the, the, the Hair Psychopathy Checklist Revised. And that is a valid and reliable assessment instrument with published data supporting that. And there are 20 characteristics, and each of the characteristics are scored on a scale of zero through two. So you would give the individual a zero if, by and large, the individual you're interviewing interviewing does not match the criteria, um, a two if the individual seems to very clearly match this criteria, and a one in cases where in some situations they do and in others they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically the cutoff criteria for a psychopath is 30 or above. Mm-hmm. So most individuals 
uh, I'll take the liberty of saying you and I might score <laughs> maybe a five or a six or below. Uh, and uh, whereas a psychopath would score 30 or higher. Now, there are some individuals who are fairly high, again, so they might score a 15, which would be much higher than the average individual, but still they are not considered uh, a psychopath. But they might just be high in narcissism or they might be have shallow affect and so forth, but not enough of the characteristics to reach the diagnosis. Interesting. So another term my listeners throw up a lot is sociopath. Mm -hmm. So can you help us differentiate psychopath from sociopath and what the differences are and why those two get talked about so much in cases like this? So there, there is not... Uh, in psychology, a diagnosis for a sociopath, okay. but rather that is a term that is sometimes used interchangeably with some other terms like a psychopath, like we've mentioned. Also, another term we haven't mentioned is a diagnosis called antisocial personality disorder, which mm-hmm. is listed in um, the psychology's handbook, uh, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there um, are some ser- similarities between antisocial personality disorder, which is ASPD, and psychopathy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even with the latest edition of the DSM, there were some changes made to the diagnostic criteria to make that Mm -hmm. ASPD diagnosis even more similar to Mm -hmm. what is studied in psychology as a a psychopath. So they are, we are moving towards more and more of an overlap between ASPD and psychopathy. But uh, those in the field have generally thought of psychopaths as being a little bit different from ASPD. Mm. Uh, And um, so when it comes to ASPD, the diagnosis has traditionally focused more on uh, behavioral characteristics, uh, acts of crime and aggression and callousness and so forth, whereas the true primary psychopath traditionally has been thought of as a little more rare and um, very, more fewer individuals would meet the criteria for psychopathy than would the broader category of ASPD so that um, the psychopath incorporates some interpersonal elements mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and some personality uh, elements that uh, um, are specific to a psychopath and that's where you see that con artist element of their personality mm-hmm, emerging mm-hmm. because the psychopath truly is a con artist they are Uh, not only narcissistic and pathological liars uh, and impulsive and irresponsible, but they are also have this element of charm and manipulativeness to their personality that sets them apart from other types of just antisocial criminals. Right. And just listing some of the other traits you mentioned, uh, glibness, superficial charm, grandiose sense of self-worth, pathological lying, conning and manipulative, lack of remorse or guilt, shallow effect, Callous, lack of empathy, failure to accept responsibility for actions, promiscuous sexual behavior, lack of realistic long-term goals, poor behavioral controls, high need for stimulation, prone to boredom, irresponsible. Those are a lot. (laughs) Exactly. So you can see why some individuals, sure, would be irresponsible and impulsive, uh, but they might not be promiscuous in terms of their sexual behavior. They Mm -hmm. also might not have... 
uh, scored high in terms of their criminal history. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I wasn't on the list that I just gave you, but their criminal history could be added to that list. And many psychopaths do have a very varied background when it comes to their criminal background. Uh, they also another characteristic is uh, revocation of conditional release, mm-hmm. and sometimes that is evident when a, an individual is released on probation or parole and then commits another crime and that gets revoked. But it also, a person also would score high, get a two for that item if they escaped from prison. Mm-hmm. And that's revocation mm-hmm. of conditional release, which is another aspect of psychopathy. So as you can see, or should I say here, There's quite a bit of work that goes into understanding these subjects, and it's not as easy as I or any of us might think. I hope we'll have Trina back for some future conversations as we continue to understand what we ourselves might learn from some of the most historic crimes to affect the classic city. When we come back, we'll hear from a former employee of John Mooney's who worked for Somebody's Pizza, who now teaches what? forensic psychology. There is still so much to unpack and we will be right back. Are you looking for something exciting to do as we head into spring and the Easter season? Well, be sure to join the CCC Insiders group on Facebook because we're doing a real life egg hunt this coming Friday. We'll be hiding 24 eggs in key locations to the stories we've been telling with riddles to help you find them. And yes, there will be goodies inside. Again, join CCC Insiders on Facebook and look out for the egg announcement. Happy spring from Classic City Crime. Welcome back. Our next guest on the show is Deborah Cowart-Steckler. Okay, so I teach at the University of Mary Washington. It's in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Mm-hmm. I teach psychology. One of the classes that I teach is forensic psychology, and I've been teaching forensic psychology for forever. <laughs> um, I mean, over 20 years. So. But before we go there and talk about what she does now and her outlook on the case from an academic lens, I want us to go back in time once again. Yes, let's return to 1977. Deborah knew John Mooney as he was her boss, a good boss, she says. I mean, basically, he was a nice guy. Now, you know, you got to understand, my memory is from that of an employee. So, Right, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, we, maybe there were a few exceptions, but most of us, we really didn't know what was going on as far as leases or, you know, relationships with other restaurants or other people in the Athens area or anything like that. I mean, we just went to work and we were busy and we all liked each other and got along and, and John was a nice guy. I thought John was a nice guy. I mean, there were some things that happened that, you know, sort of went against that, but I mean, basically he was a nice guy. We all got along with him. I asked her if she recalls whether or not the drama between Mooney and Hardy ever spilled over into the workplace. Um, I mean, we all knew that, that, you know, John was trying to undercut TK's beer prices. 
because then we would get a bunch of people coming over and sitting on our deck and drinking all day and you know and then TK would lower his prices and then everybody would go over there and so it was a back and forth so I mean we knew that that stuff was going on but but it wasn't a big part of you know we just didn't pay it that much of attention we that was part of being in the business and being competitive with other restaurants and stuff we thought now, I know we've discussed this with others before, but I think it's important we create a clear record here for the future. So I asked Deborah, when TK Hardy was killed, was it apparent to her and her co-workers that their boss might be guilty? No, we didn't know what to think. I mean, you know, it, I'm not sure if, how accurate my memory is, but um, I mean, we were all working away. And then we started hearing talk that TK hadn't been around for a few days. Mm-hmm. And then we heard that, you know, he had been murdered. And then John took a vacation, you know, went over to Europe. And Odd timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, no kidding. But nobody... No, we didn't have any idea, I don't think, most of us. Um, we, I don't think we thought that it had gotten to the point where that would be, you know, any kind of solution. I think we knew about, you know, that somebody's was going to lose the lease, that we were going to be evicted, but it, but still it just didn't seem like it was leading up to any sort of murder right right so once the news comes out that you know they're looking for John Mooney what what went through your mind and your coworkers minds I'm wondering well i do remember that the gbi guys used to come and sit out on the deck at somebody's mm-hmm. and and you know they would always stand out because I mean, on the deck, there were students in jeans and T-shirts and, you know, getting rowdy, drinking lots of beer. And these guys would come in dressed in black suits with white shirts and ties, and they'd order a pitcher of beer and, you know, pour themselves a glass of beer and sit at a table. And they were very stiff with perfect posture, and they'd kind of look around and, I don't know, like maybe they were going to pick up clues or something Clues or not, her boss was guilty indeed, and we all know the rest of that story. But you'll recall, perhaps it was this case or something else, but Deborah herself now too teaches forensic psychology. So we had a discussion, a long one, about her thoughts and the traits she connects now to the man she once worked for. And you're going to hear a word Trina mentioned from her too. What I'm going to do here is just play Deborah's conversation with me as she details the lens she now views John Mooney from. It it just brings you back to that question, how well do you ever know anybody? Mm. You know, and, and it's just always puzzled me how someone I thought I knew could cause the death of someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've thought about this a lot. and And... 
I have a, a real interest in the psychopathic personality, and so I've thought about it in in those terms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, to talk about this, I've I've got to I've got to talk a little bit about the psychopathic personality generally, and then I'll tie in aspects of that to features of of John's personality and his behavior that I think illustrate these points. Right. Sure. Okay, so before I start, I got to say, you know, I liked John when I was working for him, and I think everybody at Somebody's did, mostly. Um, Mm -hmm. He was the boss you wanted to have. It was fun to work there. And so when I talk about him this way, I'm kind of stepping outside of that perspective and trying to be objective about this, Mm -hmm. which is really easy to do from a psychological point of view, because just to give you a little bit of background on on my psychological background when i was in college i had this great professor who i took a number of times and one of the things that she said in one of the classes that i took with her and and this was something that really attracted me to psychology she said in psychology behavior is neither good nor bad it just is Mm. And I really like that. It's it's non-judgmental, um, and that so that's the perspective that I'm going to take when I talk about John and and the psychopathic personality and all of that sort of thing. Great, great. I really like that quote. So with that, I know, isn't that good? <laughs> with that in mind, that there's neither good nor bad behavior, and we're talking about it objectively. Let's dive in. Tell me what you think. Okay, so I think that when most people think about a psychopath. They think about someone who is scary and murderous and constantly involved in horrible, horrible criminal behavior, and that if you were around the psychopath, you would definitely recognize them. There would be a weird glint in their eye or something that would give them away, Mm -hmm. and that could not be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Psychopaths are among us. They are social chameleons. They fit in. That is almost like their superpower. They fit in and they are not noticeable that there is something so different about them. But psychopaths, when if the term psychopath is used today, it's used in a special context. Mm-hmm. And people who are described as psychopaths have biological, cognitive, emotional, and psychological features that make them different from other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when we talk about psychopathy, I think it's really important to note that psychopathy occurs on a continuum so that at one extreme end, you have people who have absolutely no psychopathic traits. On the other extreme end, you have people who are total psychopaths, and then everybody else falls in between. So being a psychopath is not an all-or-nothing situation. I see, I see. Now, now I'm going to go through and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, main characteristics of psychopathy. And I also want to say, I don't, you know, I don't think John was a, was a full-blown psychopath, mm-hmm. but I think that he had enough 
of those features, enough of those characteristics that made it easier for him to carry out this behavior that he got in trouble Interesting, for. interesting. Okay. So the two outstanding features of a psychopath are superficial charm and good intelligence. So superficial charm means that on the surface, these people just seem to be great. You want to be around them. You mm. really like them. They're very charismatic. They're very appealing. They're a lot of fun. They make you feel like you are important to them. But it's all superficial. Mm. You know, because one ability, and I'll talk a little bit about this more in just a second, but mm -hmm. one ability that, that psychopaths don't have is to really truly experience emotions mm -hmm. superficial charm is is one main characteristic of psychopaths another main characteristic of psychopaths is something called good intelligence mm -hmm. this doesn't really refer to iq this doesn't really <laughs> refer to how you know academically smart they are it's more it's more um, like social intelligence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're good in social situations. In a, in a social situation with people, they always have their wits about them. They always know what to say, what to do. Like plenty of us, as we go through our day, you know, we might get into an argument with one of our friends or we do something that we think of as being really stupid. And later on that day, when we're thinking back to it, we think, Oh my God, that's what I should have said. Or we think, Oh, that's what I should have done. Mm. Psychopaths never feel that way. They mm. always know what to say. They're never at a loss for words. They always know what to do. That's what good intelligence means. Mm -hmm. Another feature of psychopaths is that they lack empathy. They don't understand that behaviors that they might engage in mm -hmm. can adversely affect other people and make people sad or upset or depressed. And... You know, we've heard in your podcast, mm -hmm. and Jimmy Jeanette talked about how John cut him out of the business. Right. And it was a surprise to him. Jimmy went out of town one weekend, and when he left, he was part owner of somebody's pizza. And when he came back, he no longer had an interest in the business anymore. John cut him out mm -hmm. while he was out of town. You right. can imagine... How upsetting that must have been to Jimmy to find out that he'd been mistreated that way by somebody he thought was his friend. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that would that would hurt anybody's feelings. Right. John never seemed to be bothered by that behavior then. Mm -hmm. Um you know, and this is this is a pretty consistent behavior on the part of psychopaths they use people to get what they want and related to that is um that psychopaths have a lack of remorse 
They don't experience guilt. They don't experience shame. And and here's something that I remember really well from back in those days mm-hmm, that I mm-hmm. think illustrates this point. So when when uh, John was on trial, I went I went to the trial every day. And the first day I was there, mm-hmm. you know, I walk in and there's the all the lawyers are up there and, you know, John is sitting at the table and, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. And I sat down and, and I'm looking around to see who else is there that I know. And, and I noticed that John is sitting there and he, all of a sudden he stood up and he turned around and he was looking out, you know, over the crowd who's come to mm-hmm. watch the trial. And mm-hmm. he sees me. And he smiles real big and he waves and he motions for me to come up and talk to him. Wow. And he's happy, you know, like laughing. And I just thought, wow, that's really weird. Not what you'd expect from someone facing these types of allegations, I guess. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. I mean... I think that most people, if they were in that position, even if they hadn't done what they were accused of doing, sure. they would feel a little self-conscious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they wouldn't draw attention to themselves. They wouldn't call friends up to talk to them. You know, it was just very strange. Right. Um, you know, so he didn't seem uncomfortable at all it was like this was theater and he was on stage Hmm. um and and kind of related to that because you know all of these characteristics are not totally separate they can overlap Mm -hmm. and influence all the other ones so sort of related to that is um this absence of nervousness. Psychopaths have this ability to always keep their cool, no matter what kind of situation they're in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if you read about psychopaths, um, they are described as being sort of like James Bond. You know, if you right, watch any right. Bond movies, he's always well-dressed and his clothes are never wrinkled and no matter what kind of situation he's in, he's he's always cool and calm and in control. And a psychopath is like that too. Um, there's this real absence of nervousness. They their demeanor is always the same. They don't lose their temper. They don't get ruffled. Um, and I think that this absence of nervousness. This ability to stay cool and calm played was important in how he could create and conduct his new life wow, after yes. he escaped. You know, that's one thing that's always really struck me is that, you know, it takes one type of person to be able to hire one person to kill another individual, but then to really live a double life with no regard for the actual truth and no willingness to tell the actual truth is quite um, remarkable, I think. 
And to keep yourself so under control, so restrained, so that you don't let it slip. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, how he must have, when he was trying to create this life out in Arizona, he must have been in situations where he sat around with some people who thought they were his friends and just to shoot the breeze and stuff like this. How, you know, and especially if you're having a couple of beers or something, how do you not get relaxed enough Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that you say that you hint about something like that, you know, or how do you get married (laughs) and not, and, and keep all of that from your wife and not be anxious about it, not be concerned about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, now, I know that he said um, when he was caught in Arizona that it was almost a relief. Mm-hmm. And so that suggests that maybe he was a little bit concerned. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he probably was not as concerned as I would have been or you would have been or some other non-psychopathic person would have been. Right, right. Um, And then, you know, related to that is what what might have helped this situation, especially in a marriage, especially with people who thought they were his friends, psychopaths um, don't experience emotions the way non-psychopathic people do. Their affect is really shallow. I mean, it's almost like psychopaths have this inability to experience emotions. Mm -hmm. They don't feel anything. They fake it. They can fake it. But they don't really feel anything. They don't feel love. They don't feel real joy. I mean, everything is sort of like just on an even keel. Mm -hmm. But from their associations with people as they've gone through their life, they've learned what love looks like Mm. they've learned what joy looks like what happiness looks like what anger looks like and they can act that out but they don't feel it psychopaths tend to keep people at a psychological distance um maybe because they they feel that nobody is good enough for them Mm -hmm. you know and again how do you marry somebody and they must believe that you love them and you don't and you're not psychologically intimate with them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know i mean so anyway that one one of the main characteristics of psychopathy is this absence of emotion Right. Um, but then you're doing great, I mean, by the way. I'm just letting you keep going because it's perfect. So I'm just gonna not <laughs> stop you. Okay. All right. Good. Um, another another aspect of psychopaths is that they take unrealistic risks. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when we hear people talk about risk taking behavior, we think we think of physical risks. You know, people jumping off of high high heights or skydiving or, you know, doing stupid things that would hurt them physically. Mm -hmm. 
but here's there are all kinds of different ways to take risks and here's a risk that john took that was really unrealistic and and not wise Mm -hmm. he trusted elmo right you know if you think about what other people in your podcast said about elmo florence they pretty much agreed that he wasn't all that bright Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how do you trust someone with well and and it was unfounded because you know he did spill beans and that's how everybody got caught sent to jail right so that was an unrealistic risk that john took but but psychopaths are impulsive so i think that that what happened with john is that you know yeah there were these beer wars uh somebody's would lower their beer prices and get all the crowds and tk's would lower their beer prices and get all the crowds and and then um but that was more like a game Mm -hmm. and then um you know tk served him with an eviction notice and so that piled up on top of you know the business aspect of the restaurant Mm -hmm. now there's the threat of him being evicted but then what tipped the scales was that real estate deal right right when he found out about that his impulsive side took over and he talked to elmo and they got the ball rolling and then the next thing you know tk is no longer living right right that's real risk taking to trust elmo someone like that with your life mm-hmm. that was pretty bad judgment to say the least right <laughs> yeah, really really yeah oh. and then you know another and and this is like the last characteristic i'm going to mention is mm-hmm. that psychopaths have a pretty um a pretty high opinion of themselves you know, they're more than self-confident. They think they're God's gift. And I think that if you could go back and talk to the bankers who dealt with John mm-hmm. when they were when he came to get loans for the for somebody's pizza, I think that 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 behavior would be that they would remember that mm-hmm. and that that narcissism was apparent to them. And I think that they could, uh, you know, tell you about, yeah, how he was really, really confident. And, and I saw John come back from dealing with the bankers and heard what he said about that process and heard him, you know, laugh and make jokes about, the other people who were involved in how good a job he did because he was so great. He didn't say it in those words, but Mm -hmm. that was definitely the impression he was giving. Right. Now here's an interesting uh, idea about Mm -hmm. psychopaths. Some people who do research on psychopaths think that with age, 
psychopaths might grow out of all of them. Interesting. Because a lot of these behaviors are the result of like a nervous system, a brain that takes uh, way longer to mature Mm -hmm. than a typical person. Mm -hmm. And so if that is true, um, now when you talk to John, he might truly experience remorse and guilt and regrets and you know, the appropriate behavior, the appropriate feelings that you would expect someone to have. Exactly. Exactly. And it might be because, you know, his nervous system has finally matured to the point where he is now capable of having those feelings. Now, this view of psychopathy, there are lots of different views of psychopathy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just one. Uh, there's different research going on about, you know, different models for understanding psychopathy and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so what, you know, these, these uh, behaviors and these personality characteristics that I've been talking about, th- this is, this is one view. This was, this is probably the view that's been around for a, a really, really long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's by no means the only one. Right. So. so having heard all of this from both of the wonderful women of great knowledge that we've had on this week, I had to ask Deborah this evening, is there anything that can be done, whether called a cure, treatment, therapy? Here's what she had to say. That's a great question. Okay, so there there are actually multiple parts to your question there. So yes, people can know that they're different. Mm-hmm. Psychopaths can can realize that there is something different about them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they. I mean, you know, and and it it's going to differ from person to person the extent to which they they realize that i mean some people are going to have an easier time understanding that about themselves than others mm-hmm. it it might depend on how introspective one is you know or if if they really spend a lot of time thinking about their inner workings and you know all of that kind of stuff right, so right. there's going to be individual differences in that regard but yes it is it is totally possible for a psychopath to understand that there is something different about them mm-hmm. um, than other people. Right. As far as treatment goes, the 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 uh, short answer is no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh gosh, treatment. It, it, well, it's going to depend on. How, you know, where on the continuum Mm -hmm. they are in terms of the strength of the psychopathic traits they have. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about somebody who is a really hardcore, callous, criminal psychopath, and if you try to give them some sort of treatment, Mm -hmm. they are going to 
they're going to learn from that and they're going to that's going to teach them how to manipulate other people wow mm-hmm. what, what they need to say what they need to do how they need to act to look normal quote mm-hmm. unquote mm-hmm. and get more privileges in you know prison or whatever whatever end they want to achieve interesting um so no there hasn't been any treatment that i know of that has been successful Mm -hmm. there's been interesting research though that has found that if you give um a psychopath if you inject them with like adrenaline, a stimulant, mm-hmm. then they can behave pretty normally. Interesting. Because, you know, I mentioned that there yeah. were biological differences in psychopaths. Mm-hmm. It, it seems that their nervous systems are, are sort of dampened, that, that the nervous systems of psychopaths are, are sluggish. And so, under normal circumstances, psychopaths feel bored and tired and and sluggish. Mm. And so, they seek out forms of stimulation to arouse themselves, which will arouse their nervous system, kind of kick their nervous system into action, and it'll make them feel awake and alert. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's research. I mean, you can't, you know, identify a psychopath in prison and say, all right, we're going to give you stimulants in pill form and you have to take, you know, three a day. And if you do, we're going to release you. You know, you just can't do that. Right, right, right. So, no, there hasn't been any successful treatment that I know of that will... Uh, change the psychopathic personality. Interesting. So now we know a little more about what might have been going on inside the heads of the key players in this case. I couldn't move on without us examining this side of things as I feel it's so important for all of us to hear as we look for lessons to learn and grow together. I'm Cameron J, and thanks for tuning in. Be on the lookout for part one of The Bankston Murders of 1987, a tale of violence, fear, and true madness. Take care and stay tuned. Thanks for being here. We'll see you back soon. Classic City Crime is hosted by me, Cameron J, co-produced and designed by Kyle Kazaya. Visit us online at ClassicCityCrime.com, on Facebook or Instagram at ClassicCityCrime, and be sure to email us or contact us with anything you think we might need to know. ClassicCityCrime at gmail.com.